I will be reading from the English Standard Version this evening. Galatians chapter 3, verses 26, all the way to chapter 4, verse 7, sons of God. This is the word of the Lord, church, starting here in verse 26. Paul writes, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth the Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. This is the word of God this evening, church. Let's go before one more time in prayer. Lord God, we thank you for this day that you've given us. We thank you, Lord, that God, for those who believe in you by faith alone, we have the privilege to be called your children, God, to be sons, to be heirs of the great inheritance of salvation that is only possible through the name of Christ Jesus. God, we thank you, Lord, that you have saved us at, at, not that we deserved it, not that you had to give it to us, but because, God, you showed your great love for us, that you sent your son Jesus to die for us. God, I just pray for my brothers and sisters this evening. I pray that this passage, Lord, would encourage them, Lord, greatly in their faith. I pray that, Lord, it will help correct them, Father, in any way, so that, God, at the end of it all, they can be more like Christ Jesus. And if there's anyone here tonight who does not know you, Lord, we pray for their salvation. Or if anyone here is listening online who doesn't know you, we pray that they will just be convicted of their sin, that, God, they will just realize that there is no name under heaven that saves but the name Christ Jesus so that God they could receive the inheritance of adoption as sons and daughters and come to a living faith in you and live for you and so Lord we just pray that for anyone who is in that state tonight and just for myself Lord I approach this pulpit as a weak man as a as a great sinner as a as a finite being but Lord I trust in you that, God, you will just fill me with your Holy Spirit to deliver your word to your people so that, God, it is not just my musings of this, this letter in Galatians, but that, Lord, it is your word going to your people, that you will feed your sheep, Lord, and that, God, they will be satisfied and walk out and, and, and approach this week, Lord, to serve you, to glorify you, and to make disciples of all the nations by doing all things for the sake of your name. So, God, we thank you for the grace to be able to gather in your name once again this Sunday, and we, I, I just pray that, Lord, it will be your word going to your, going to your people today. And so, Lord, we love you, and we thank you, and we lift up all these things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Maybe see the church. I would just like to begin with a question. What does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to be a Christian? And I realize there's a few ways that you can answer that question. Some might say, well, being a Christian is to be a follower of Jesus, the Messiah, to believe in him as Lord and Savior. Others, especially in our culture, might say, well, I think Christians are just religious hypocrites. And they could be condemning, exclusive, the most intolerant people imaginable. 
And yet, no matter how you answer this question, it will either leave you in a state of restlessness, whether you are a Christian or not, or it will lead you to unlock, really, the secret of joy in life that can only be found in the Christian life. Therefore, in light of this question, Paul the Apostle, he gives us an answer. He, he thankfully gives us an answer here in our text tonight in Galatians 3.26-4.7. to What is his answer? Well, here's his answer here. That you are adopted into God's family by faith in Christ alone. That's his answer in our text tonight. That you are adopted into God's family by faith in Christ alone. And not only will such a reality deeply refresh your hearts, Christians, as Christians, brothers and sisters, but it can even grant life to anyone tonight who has not placed your identity in the one who just overflows with joy. And yet... How is being adopted into God's family this secret to unlocking true joy in life? Well, the, the Apostle Paul, he presents two promises to defend his case here. The first promise is God's promise of making a people for himself. God's promise of making a people for himself, as we will see in um, chapter 3, verses 26 to 29. That's the first promise. The second promise is that God's promise of sending his son by the Spirit. God's promise of sending his son by the spirit, as we'll see at the end, in chapter 4, verses 1 to 7. So it's these two promises that will defend Paul's answer that, that if you want to find joy in life, you must be adopted into God's family by faith in Christ alone. And so with all that in mind, let's begin with the first promise tonight. That God's promise of making a people for himself. And so look at your Bibles, loved ones, in Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 to 27. This is how Paul begins our text this evening. He says, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. And so if you remember last time, the last time I was preaching through Galatians, Paul was teaching on one feature of God's law. And that one feature he was highlighting was that the law functions as a guardian. Excuse me. Or in other words, it functions as a tutor. And what he meant by that is that the purpose of the law, at least for the nation of Israel, it was to prepare them for the promised coming Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. And since God's law is a reflection of his perfect nature as the essence of goodness, he himself is really right, the standard of what is right and wrong. And to break his law is to rebel against God himself. And so the purpose of God's law is to show that humanity is not good, but sinful. It reveals the sinful nature of humanity and how much they, or you and I, loved ones, are in need of a Savior. And so until Jesus the Messiah would come, the law tutored Israel. The law was a tutor, um, tutoring them regarding these spiritual truths. And yet, Paul says in Galatians 3.25, a passage earlier, that now that faith has come, you are no longer under a guardian. Why? Well, as Paul says here, beginning in our text in verse 26, that in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. That's why the law no longer functions as a guardian to prepare you for the Messiah, because since Christ has come, you are all sons of God through faith. In other words, the law's purpose as a tutor has now ended because faith in Christ has now arrived. It is now possible for humanity to become sons of God through faith in him alone. But that then begs another question, right? Well, what does it mean to be a son of God? 
Well, generally, it's used in t- about two different ways throughout the New Testament. First, it is usually used as a title for Jesus. Jesus the Messiah as God's eternally begotten Son, the Son of God. That's a title that's used for Jesus. And yet, there's also another way that the Son of God is used. And it's used to also describe the status of Christians. The status of born-again believers before God. And it's with that in mind that this is the meaning that Paul is focusing on here in Galatians 3.26. And he is going to expound upon this meaning of what does it mean to be a son of God. Especially when we get to the end of our passage tonight. And so I don't want to, you know, jump the gun and start introducing these things. I'm going to wait until Paul gets there later in chapter 4. But what I can say, though, about this idea of the sons of God, or what does it mean to be a son of God as a Christian... I just have to say that just studying this passage, loved ones, it brought me to a point of deep gratitude. It brought me to a sense of deep joy to God for my salvation. Because usually when I study a passage of scripture to preach it, it usually reveals how much of a sinner I am, right? How much a punk I am, like, man, I suck. Man, I got to put that off and put on Christ Jesus. And yet, just studying and just reviewing this idea of what does it mean to be a son of God, I can say that it is perhaps one of the most beautiful What are the most glorious aspects of your hope as Christians, loved ones, even when it comes to the gospel of Jesus itself? And I I believe that you will agree with me towards the end of um, tonight's sermon. But in the meantime, though, I will expound upon this concept as Paul will bring it up, you know, slowly but surely. In the meantime, just notice what Paul says immediately about what does it mean to be a son of God. He says that if you even want to be called a son of God, that is, a Christian— It is only in Christ, Jesus, through faith. That is how you are a son of God. In other words, if you want to be set free from God's eternal condemnation that his law brings, you have to believe in Jesus. You have to believe in his son by faith alone. Why? Well, Paul's going to ground this truth with two reasons. If you look at Galatians 3.27, he gives these two reasons why. He says that for as many of you were baptized into Christ... That's the first reason. Have put on Christ. That's another reason. So first, a Christian has been baptized into Christ. That's the first reason. And again, the second is that a Christian has put on Christ. And when you really look at these two um, pictures that Paul's bringing up here, they're really referring to one same concept. But let me explain one. Let me explain each one individually. Starting with the first one. To be baptized into Christ really symbolically demonstrates how a Christian is born again from death and sin to life in Christ. In other words, the ordinance of baptism, which we all have been baptized, we believe in Jesus, it functions really as a visible sign demonstrating the invisible grace that God or what God has done in your hearts as Christians, taking away your sinful heart of stone and replacing it with a heart of flesh. As Paul says in Romans chapter 6, verses 3 to 4, he says this about this picture that, Do you not know that all who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. So, baptism is a visible sign demonstrating that you have invisibly identified with Christ by believing in him. And so when you are baptized by being immersed here at our church, by being immersed below the waters of baptism, 
What that ultimately illustrates at the end of the day is that you have died to sin. You are no longer a slave to sin. You are no longer not able not to sin. Instead, once you rise out of those waters of baptism, again, symbolically, you are now alive to Christ. You are now a slave to righteousness because you are now able to not sin by the grace of God alone. And so as you walk the Christian life then, because you believe in Jesus, loved ones, remember that you are now able to walk in the newness of life in Christ each and every single day until God brings that work to completion at the day when you arrive at heaven before his face in glory. That's what Paul means, that you have been baptized into Christ. It just shows what God has already done in your heart, causing you to live this new life as a born-again creature in him. That's the first picture. The second picture is when, Christ, when Paul says that Christians have put on Christ. Where the first imagery um, refers to baptized into Christ, he then talks about this idea of putting on Christ. And so instead of using baptism, he is using the imagery of clothing here. And notice what he's saying here, right? Put on Christ. He's getting to the point of putting off old clothing and replacing it with new clothing by putting it on. That's the imagery that Paul is using here. And just to kind of allude to another passage that Paul says in light of this idea, he says in Colossians 3, 9 to 10, that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self. You are being renewed in knowledge according to, your, to the image of your creator. And so think about this imagery with me here. I'm not sure about you, but I always desire to put off my old clothes and put on new ones when I get home after a long day at work. You know, I don't desire to keep those same clothes on. They smell, they feel dirty, especially after working all day. And so when I get home, I desire to take them off, freshen up by taking a shower, and then put on new clothes so that I can rest at the end of the day. That's kind of the imagery that Paul is using here. And so likewise then, spiritually now, before Christ, before you ever came to know Christ by faith, your old clothing is your sinful lifestyle that you inherited from Adam, the first sinner, the first human being. And it is only by being born again that you are not only able to put off your filthy garments of sin, but you're able to replace them by putting on your new, clean garments of righteousness in Christ. That's the picture that Paul is getting at here. And so as a result, loved ones, you are being renewed each and every day to not only grow in your knowledge of the Creator God, but in your love of Him too. And it's only when you grow in your love of God that you will slowly grow in your obedience to Him, to obey His Word, to, to, to live out His Word. And it's only when you grow in such obedience to God that you become more like him each and every single day in Christ-like holiness. And so when Paul uses these two images then to show that you are a son of God, he alludes to really the good works in your life that authenticates that you truly believe in Christ by faith alone. He is not teaching that we are saved by good works of what we do, but if you truly believe in Jesus by faith alone that saves you at the end of the day, then there's just going to be this fruit. There's going to be this lifestyle change that happened as a result of the moment you first believed in Jesus. And so with that in mind, loved ones, it is vital that you do grow in Christ-like holiness every single day. These, Im these imageries, these pictures of what is it of how we're sons of God, right? What does that look like? These are very helpful of how we can live the Christian life, of how you can become more like Jesus. And, it's, and really, it's when you embrace these pictures, how to become a, how you grow into a Christian, 
is that you will begin to flourish really in this Christian life to experience joy of really of how God designed you to live joyfully in this world. Consider the pattern that Paul says in Ephesians 4, 22 to 24, which is very similar language to what he says in Colossians and what he says here of putting on Christ in Galatians. He says in Ephesians 4, starting in verse 22, that put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And so instead of living like the sinful culture around, around you, you are called by God to put off your old self and sin. Then, are you, then after you do that, you are to replace it with something greater, with the righteous opposite, to put on the new self in Christ. Well, how do we do that, John? Well, Paul gives us the answer, by renewing your mind. In other words, it's by renewing your mind with the truth of God's word, that is how you're able to put off your love of sin and replace it with the greater love of God. In other words, you just got to live in your Bibles. It is by reading your Bibles, meditating on your Bibles, memorizing it, praying it, talking about it with your family, studying it with your church family, that you will begin to learn God's thoughts. And it's when you learn God's thoughts and it's just so overwhelming your mind that then they start to shape your habits. No longer are you desiring to do sinful things anymore, but because you're renewing your mind through the word of God, it is shaping your habits and really rewiring your heart your desires, your affections toward God. Only then will your love of the world grow cold and really your love of the things of God grow all the more stronger. It is through God's word, by his Holy Spirit, alongside the help of the local church, that he will purify you, that he will purify all of you loved ones as his own possession, as a people for himself, so that you may all live a life worthy as unto him, of making disciples, doing all things for the sake of your name, regarding your vocation, families, all these different things. And so with that in mind, it's, it's because of this that if you're not then living in your Bibles to be able to experience such change, such growth, then you will not be living in a way that pleases God. Because how can you? You're not utilizing the means of how he, is, um, how, how he is helping you to change, to become more like Jesus. And so loved ones, live in your Bibles so you will be killing sin, so that you will grow in your love of God more and more every single day. And yet, Paul continues his thought on the spiritual reality of being sons of God, where it is first only possible by faith in Christ alone, leading to spiritual fruit in your life. Paul adds another transcending human. He, he, Paul adds another idea here about the sons of God, and, it, and this idea really transcends human culture. And so, look what he keeps talking about here, starting in the next verse in Galatians three twenty-eight. Paul says here that there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And so what Paul says here, he's, he's listing three categories here. He's given a category of, of ethnicity, um, one category that's regarding social, and the other regarding gender. And so this first category of ethnicity, Paul is saying, when he says Jew or Greek, he is just really referring to ethnicities. Yet, what does it mean to be an ethnic Jew? And, and when he ta- says Greek, he's just referring that as a catch-all term for everyone else. And so Jew or Greek, he's just referring to all these different sorts of ethnicities. 
But yet, when he gets into the social category of slave or free, he is just referring to all the various different social categories that, human, that humanity will make. Or in his day, you were either a slave or you were either a free man. And yet, then he gets into a third category that is about gender. That there are male and female, and he's alluding back here to Genesis 127, that at the end of the day, despite what our culture says, there's only two genders that exist in creation biologically. As, 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 as it says in Genesis 127, that God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created him. And so this then begs another question. Why does Paul even waste his time bringing up these different categories? And if you look at the text closely, what is the point of him negating all these distinctions that there's neither Jew or Greek, um, slave or free, or male or female? Well, the first thing I can say is that he is not denying these differences. He's not denying that these don't really exist in reality because at the end of the day, there is a distinction between Jews and Greeks, a slave and a free person, males and females. Those distinctions do, do exist. And yet, remember the context of what Paul is getting at here in Galatians 3. Paul has been talking about one theme and one theme alone here in this chapter, and it is the theme of salvation. How it is only possible by faith in Christ alone. And so Paul's point here is that when it comes to salvation, there is no distinctions. No one is better than the other when it comes to salvation before God. Instead, everyone is seen as an equal before God salvifically in a salvation sense. This is why Paul then says um, at the end of Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, that for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And so to be one in Christ here, it is to be united to him by faith. And this thing captures a very interesting spiritual truth. Consider what the ancient church father, John Chrysostom, he, this is what he says as he's commenting on this passage. He says that if Christ be the Son of God and you have put him on, you who have the Son within you and are fashioned after his pattern, he says, you have been brought into one kindred and one nature with him. In other words, since you have put on Christ by faith, you are now, in a sense, united to him. And Paul's going to further explain later what he means by this through the salvific imagery of adoption. Yet, the reason there are no distinctions spiritual between Christians is that at the end of the day, because of your faith in Jesus, you are all one in Christ. In other words, the church, every Christian who believes in Jesus by faith alone, you are united together by your common faith in Jesus because you are seen as one spiritual family in God. It is your faith that unites you to not only to be one with Christ individually, but it is also your faith that unites you together as God's people, to, as one family with each other corporately. Christ dwells in you as you live for him and others. And this all just then leads into what Paul says next in the very next verse, where he says in Galatians 3.29 that if you are Christ's at this point, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. And so Paul is just moving along with his argument here because this is all connected. In this verse, at least, he is, he is organizing it as a condition. That is, it's, it's, it's an if-then statement. If the first part is true, then the second part will follow. And so Paul says that if you are of Christ by faith, that you are one in him, then you are also an offspring of Abraham. And he then, and then, and he then further explains this by saying that you are an heir 
You are an heir according to the promises of God made with Abraham. And, Paul, and, and, and check out what Paul is saying here. He is not saying that if you believe in Christ by faith, that you then become an ethnic son of Abraham. Remember what Paul was teaching here throughout Galatians 3. As Paul said, for example, in Galatians 3.16, he says that now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say into offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. In other words, the promise here is the seed promise first mentioned throughout the book of Genesis. And just to give one famous example of it, based on what Genesis 12.3 says, look at what it records. God says to Abraham that I will bless those who bless you, and he who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. In other words, God promises that through Abraham's family, a seed or a descendant or an offspring, they will come to bring the blessing of salvation to not only Israel, but to all the nations, both Jew and Greek at this point. And as Paul argues in Galatians 3.16, he ultimately makes the point that it is Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus of Messiah. He is the ultimate fulfillment of this promise. Because not only does Abraham himself believe in this promise by faith, but all who believe in Jesus, the Messiah, by faith are not only sons of God, but are also seeds of Abraham spiritually. And what Paul was really getting at here then is it's only Christ, only Jesus can unite a people from all the nations back to himself again here. Whether it is Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male and female, all who believe in Christ whether you are a diverse people, he brings them all together as one family united by their common faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior. And that is so important to keep in mind, loved ones, because no other religion claims that reality. No philosophy, no political ideology can even make that claim. They can try, but they can't carry it out pra pragmatically. Although Christianity is exclusive, it is only by faith in Christ alone. He is the only way to salvation. And yet... It is perhaps one of the most inclusive religions because it's, because it's, it's open to anyone, any ethnicity, any social status, any gender role. You can come to faith in Jesus Christ the Messiah if you deny yourself, repent of your sins, and place your faith in Jesus. And as a result, you are all fellow heirs of the promise that God has first given to Abraham, faith in Jesus. Anything, and if you're not sure what an heir is at this point, it is just simply a person who receives, who receives a gift here. Someone who receives in a gift, and when we're talking about salvation, that is one of the greatest gifts, if not the greatest gift, that God has given to humanity. And if you receive salvation in God, then that is indeed a gift that you receive from him, and, and it's a gift then to all who believe in Jesus as Lord and Savior, for you are heirs for receiving it. Therefore, to be a son of God here at this point, it is a spiritual reality that transcends all ethnic, social, and gender barriers. Anyone can receive the gift of salvation, but only by faith in Christ alone. He is the only way, for he is, for he is the truth and the life. And nonetheless, that all begs another question. It is one thing to be a son of God, right, in, in, in these ways that Paul is describing here, but what is the process of actually becoming one? And why does it even matter at the end of the day? Well, the second promise, it indicates how God does, does this exactly and how he makes a people for himself. And it, and it leads to the second promise, that God's promise of sending his son by the Spirit. 
God's promise of sending his son by the Spirit, that is how, we're going, that is how you're going to see how God actually makes himself sons of God by redeeming a people back to himself from all the nations, from all social classes, ethnic barriers, all these different things. And so look at how Paul begins this, this second section here in Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. He's going to present an illustration here. Check it out what he says here. He says, I mean that, in, that the heir, as long as he is a child, he is no different from a slave. Though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. And so... This is an illustration that Paul is presenting here. And yet, it's not a new one because he's actually expanding upon one that, he's actually expounding upon the, the, the illustration that he brings up earlier in, in Galatians chapter 3. And it's in verses 23 to 25, and it's that illustration that the law is a tutor, that the law was there to prepare Israel for the coming Messiah. And so, what is this new illustration here in Galatians 4? Well, Paul was saying that a child is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. And now what does Paul mean by that? Because that's that, that, very hard to understand. And in order to understand it, you need to know something about the culture of Paul's day here. In the Greco-Roman culture, in Paul's day, male sons, particularly, they were the heirs to inherit their father's fortunes. And the, and, and the whole purpose of doing that was to one day eventually take care of the family. And yet, until that son came to age, he was not ready or even incapable of handling it as a small child. And that word for child in the Greek, it's actually, it's, 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 it's referring to a very small child that could range from either an infant or maybe to a toddler between like three to four years old. And so someone that young is not ready to bear the responsibility of receiving the inheritance of their father. They're just not ready for it, and they don't even have the ability to do so yet. And so until that son then is ready and old enough to receive his father's inheritance as the rightful heir, Paul says in Galatians 4, 2, that he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. Until that day comes, he is just like a slave, where a slave, in a, in a sense, owes nothing. This child, although he will one day inherit these things, he owes nothing at all. And so, so until that time comes, he is under these guardians he is under these managers until the date set by his father. And so in order to understand the significance of that, though, this is kind of a preparation stage for this son. This word for guardian, it's not the same word that Paul uses earlier in Galatians 3, 23 to 25. Back in, back in that passage, the emphasis, the emphasis of guardians there was to really just enforce discipline or to, or to enforce restraint on the child on behalf of the father. That's kind of what Paul mentioned about guardian earlier, um, um, last chapter in Galatians chapter 3. And yet when Paul mentions guardian here in Galatians 4, it's really the idea of providing protection. Of providing protection. So that was the responsibility of a guardian here in this illustration. And to add upon that, when it comes to managers, managers were the stewards of a household or an estate. And so they were given the, the authority and the responsibility of the father to look over the son's inheritance until that son, again, came of age. And all these different roles, they could have been carried out by different slaves. Yet it's possible that they could have been carried out by one slave altogether. Yet nonetheless, this was, this was, this was the son's life that you had people protecting him, giving him oversight, 
looking over his inheritance until the day came set by his father. But what does that phrase mean, the date set by his father? Well, it just simply refers to that when the son came of age, he was ready then to inherit his father's wealth and then to provide for the family. And what's interesting is that in Paul's day, the age of when that son was ready to receive the inheritance and to bear that responsibility to take care of the family, it was the age of 25. You had to be 25 years old in order to bear this responsibility. And it was even something inscribed into Roman law. And I just found that was crazy because, like, man, I'm not even old enough um, in, in this moment to inherit my father's inheritance if I was living in Paul's day. I got a couple months, but it's just interesting that it's, 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 it was set at the age of 25. Nonetheless, what is the significance of this illustration? Well, the reason why Paul brings up this illustration of a son, a as a child, not ready to receive the inheritance of their father, is that he's actually comparing it to Israel. Israel before Christ came, Israel while it was under the law, being brought up as sons of God. This is, this is why he says in Galatians 4.3 that in the same way, we also, there's the comparison, when we were children, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the law. And although that phrase, elementary principles of the world, it has a wide range of meaning and it can get very complicated, yet Paul's context actually makes it very clear what he's trying to get at. To put it quite simply, he is referring to the law of Moses. Israel would one day come of age to receive the inheritance of salvation by faith in Jesus, the Messiah, at God's appointed time in salvific history. Until then... They were like small little children under the discipline, under the protection, under the stewardship of the law. And this was all there to prepare them for that great and glorious day when Jesus the Messiah would come and bring salvation to all who believe in him by faith. And furthermore, this idea of elementary principles, it actually captures the idea of, of, of the foundation of something or really the first principles of something. Consider this illustration with me. Consider the ABCs, right? When you go into grade school, um, when, you, when you start grade school, if you go to public school, the first things that you need to learn is your ABCs. Because when you learn your ABCs, that is actually the building block to you to learn any language. And you must know them before you can even learn how to communicate in a language. And so keeping that, that idea in mind then, that's kind of what the elementary principles of the world is referring to. They're really the ABCs of the natural elements making up everything in the universe. But yet, how does that have to relate to the Jewish people that Paul's getting at here? Well, when you think about the law of Moses, the Jews would be aware of the seasons in nature, in the created order, in order to prepare for the various Jewish feasts that was, that was a part of their religion. Paul alludes to this concept later in Galatians 4, 9 to 10, where he says this. He says that now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days, months, and seasons and years. And so he ends there at the moment. And yet when you think about that, the only reason Paul would even refer to days, months, seasons, and years is regarding the law of Moses and all the various feasts that God gave to Israel to keep as a statute for the Jewish people forever. However, why does Paul say that in light of this reality, though, that they're not just merely under the law by obeying these commands that God has given to it, but they're actually enslaved to it? 
Why does he mention that? Well, this gets back to what Paul is saying and emphasizing throughout his letter. No one at the end of the day, no matter how hard you try, is able to obey the law of God perfectly. You're not saved by good works. It is impossible because all have fallen short of God's glory as sinners against him. Since the standard is perfection, God is perfect and and, and is the essence of goodness. All of humanity, including Israel, all the nations, we have all rebelled against God. We have all broke his law. And to be a lawbreaker, as, as Paul has been teaching, is to be under the curse of God's law. Is to, be re, is to be a recipient of God's eternal condemnation. And as a result, we can't do anything about that. Because we are sinners by nature, we can't do anything to free ourselves from God's eternal condemnation as revealed in the law. It's impossible for anyone to free themselves from it. And, and such a predicament at the end of the day is truly miserable. It's a horrible reality. Although the law is to prepare Israel for the Messiah, and it did, the primary way of doing so was to, again, reveal how sinful they were, was to reveal how sinful we are. Because only when you realize how much of a sinner you are will you realize that you are in, in great need for salvation in Jesus of the Messiah. If you don't understand the bad news of how much of a sinner you are before God, you will not appreciate and realize how much you need the good news of that there is salvation from such consequences, and that is by faith in Jesus. And yet, even the idea of God's law condemning people as slaves, it is a biblical truth. It is clearly taught in the scriptures, and yet that reality, though, it is one of the most offensive doctrines in our culture, is it not? When we talk about hell, when we talk about judgment, um, people being slaves to sin— Yes, this is a true biblical doctrine, but I don't, know, I don't know about you, but many of the people that I talk to, um, many, many, many of the friends that I have that are not in the church, they find this doctrine repulsive. Because this is how they t- typically argue. That a God of love, as the Bible presents a God of love, that sounds exclusively tolerant, right? That is something that I enjoy. And yet, a God of justice, he just, he just, he just sounds nothing more but an angry and a judgmental deity. Why can't God just forgive me for who I am? God cannot be both. If he is, then I refuse to believe in a God like that. That's how some people would would think in our culture about this reality that God judges sinners, especially through his law. And yet, when you look at the Bible, however, the Bible teaches that God is both, that he is also love, but that he is also a God of justice. And, And even when people start to complain against this, then that then begs the question, well, then what is it? What, what does love itself mean? What is love? What is justice? Think about how a person may love their spouse as an illustration. If they're being harmed, you will be wrathful, right? Because you love them and not despite of it. It makes you upset that someone is hurting the person that you love. And so by you getting angry, it's not that you are just angry and bigoted for no reason, but out of your love for that person, that that is what sparks that emotional response. Likewise, when it comes to a holy creator God, who loves what is good and right and hates what is evil and wrong, how can God not act in such a way then? Consider what Psalm 145, verses 17 to 20 says about this. It says that the Lord is righteous in all of his ways and faithful in all of his acts. The Lord is near all who call out to him, all who call out to him with integrity. He fulfills the desires of those who fear him. He hears their cry for help and saves them. The Lord guards all those who love him, but he destroys all the wicked. And so when God is upset with sinners, when God says that he will judge sinners once and for all, outpouring his wrath, 
It is not because he is just an angry, judgmental deity at the end of the day. Rather, such wrath is really an outpouring of his love. Because he hates sin, because he loves goodness, he must do what is right and judge evil once and for all. Because remember, he is the standard of goodness. He must judge what is evil. And as a result, when God, by his law, condemns people in hell because of their rebellion against him, that is, that is a just verdict. And not only is that a just verdict, but this is something else to keep in mind as well. Everyone who goes to hell, right, are not only guilty and they, and they deserve to go there, but it's also because they ultimately chose to go there as well. What do I mean by that? Well, Paul says earlier in, in his letter to the Romans, in chapter 1, verse 24, he says that God delivered them over. That is, he's referring to the, just humanity's sin. He delivered them over in the desires of their hearts to sexual impurity, for example, so that their bodies were degraded among themselves. And so you see that this, regarding the sinfulness of humanity, part of God's judgment is that he actually hands people over into their sin. And where some be like, oh, that's awesome. God allows me to do whatever I want. Not necessarily, because yes, that may seem true to you in your eyes, but what God is actually doing is that because you've rebelled against God to such a point, he is handing you over to your own destruction. He is handing you over because you have chosen your path at this point. You, don't, you do not want to repent of your sins and find life in God. You want to continue in your sinful ways, and as a response, God hands you over so that you actually receive the due penalty of your error, everlasting judgment, and hell. Not because you deserve it and God sends you there, but because also you chose it as well. I always find this quote from the Brutus writer C.S. Lewis about this, about this tension regarding hell. He says this about people. He says that there's two kinds of people. He says that you got those who say to God, your will be done, God. Let me do your will. And yet, on the other hand, you got people to where God says at the end of time, your will be done, O sinner. Your will be done. Because all that are in hell, they choose it. Without that self-choice, it wouldn't be hell. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy ever misses it. And so what he gets at the end of the day is that because people um, live in sin and choose to live in sin, not only do they go to hell because they deserve it, that's what they deserve, that's the guilty verdict that God gives them as sinners, yet that is a place where they chose to go because they would rather live in sin rather than before God. And many people would still say that that's not fair. That is not fair that God will do that. And yet, what is more fair than God handing you over to the very things that you want? Because when you do go to hell, it is just showing that you are going to the place where you deserve, that you chose to, leading to your self-destruction. And yet, even in light of that biblical reality, loved ones, despite humanity deserving nothing but God's eternal wrath in hell, because that's what we all deserve, unfortunately, yet God is not a God who is just a mere judgmental deity for judging for judging sinners as the ultimate standard of goodness. He actually showcases his love by providing a way back to anyone to be restored back to him in faith. And so what is this way back to God? Well, look at your Bibles in Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 to 5. Paul writes here, and these are famous passages, glorious passages. Paul records, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of women, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. This is a rich passage. We'll start with what he says at, at the beginning of this section. That phrase, fullness of time, that is an important verse. 
The fullness of time here, it's, it's a phrase referring to the completion of a specific time in history or a specific period of time. In other words, Paul was referring to the time before Christ. That has now come to an end. The fullness of time has come before the days of Christ. Why? Because now, now Christ has come. Although it being 2,000 years ago, the fullness of time has come. Now God has sent his son, and it was at the proper time, according to God's plan, at the right time in redemptive history. But why would Paul say that? And, and, and maybe to ask another part of the question, why would Jesus, why would Jesus coming 2,000 years ago in first century Israel, why would that be the proper time in history according to God's plan in salvific history? Well, there's actually a couple interesting things to keep in mind about, about Paul's day here. Because when you think about first century um, Israel or the first century Roman Empire, there are a couple things that actually made it possible for the gospel to actually spread like wildfire. Here's just a couple, a couple factors to keep in mind. One historical phenomenon in the first century was something known as the Pax Romana. The Pax Romana or the Roman peace, this was a period in, in, in the Roman Empire's history that there was no wars for almost about 200 years. That was one reason that allowed the gospel to even to spread in the first place, was this idea that there was no wars, so it allowed room for the gospel to spread rapidly. Another factor um, in the Roman Empire was the expansive system of Roman roads. It made it very easy to travel. So not only do you have an age of peace, in a sense, right, there's no wars in the Roman Empire, but you also have easy access to travel so that in order to make disciples of all the nations or to go out into the world, you actually have a means, a system of roads to actually make that happen. And another thing that people tend to miss is that and, and, and that despite this, this age of peace, despite the access of easy travel, there was also a common language of that day, Koine Greek. The Greek that was the, the, the language that the New Testament was originally written in, this Koine Greek or the common Greek was a language that almost every single person spoke throughout the Roman world. And so, so when you have these three factors, like just for example, there's peace, easy travel, common language, it is no wonder then that this was a perfect time for God to ordain to allow the gospel to spread rapidly throughout the Roman Empire. And just to see the fruit of that, just go, just go and read the book of Acts, and you will see that people were coming to faith by the multitude, started in Jerusalem, then Judea and Samaria, and all the way to the ends of the world, or at least the ends of the Roman Empire. Therefore, it's these factors then that, we, that Paul then says that when the fullness of time come, then God sent forth his son. God sent forth his son Jesus to be born into the world. And in what manner? How did he do this? Well, Paul mentions two things at the end of verse 4. He says, first, that God sent his son, Jesus the Messiah, to be born of woman. To be born of woman. In other words, Jesus was born of the Jewish virgin named Mary. And if you read the, the opening of the Gospel of Luke or the opening of the Gospel of Matthew, it recounts how how the Holy Spirit came upon Mary and she conceived Jesus without knowing a man by the power of God, by the power of the Holy Spirit. And yet, notice how Paul is, is wording this phrase here, born of woman. You might be like, what's the big deal with that, John? Paul is, is, is carefully using his words here as he's talking about um, Christ's birth here um, through the Virgin Mary. He does not say that Jesus was born from Mary as if she was the ultimate source, right? 
She was a vessel. She, he, was, he was actually born of Mary so that Jesus was fully God as, as we are fully man, right? And yet, what does Paul say right before that? He says that it is God who sent the Son. In other words, God is the source to where the Son came from. In other words, Jesus is from God. And such a distinction then that, you know, Jesus is from God, God sent the Son, and yet he is born of the Virgin, this points back to, a, to really the very nature of who God is in himself. Although God is one, we believe in one God as Christians, we confess him to be one, yet he is also three in one. Three distinct persons of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit united in one divine essence, in one nature. And so when Paul says that Jesus was sent from God, he is alluding to the fact that he is from God the Father. And yet it does not indicate that, that, that there was a time when Jesus didn't exist. Jesus didn't start existing when he was first born of the Virgin Mary 2,000 years ago. Rather, he is eternally begotten from the Father. In other words, there was never a time when the Father never had his Son, and there was never a time when the Son never had his Father. And when it comes to the Holy Spirit, it is this Holy Spirit that comes from both as the bond of love between the two. And so when it comes to how God sent his Son, Jesus came from God because Jesus is fully God, yet he was born of the Virgin Mary, showing that he is also fully man as well. Jesus the Savior of the world is both fully God and fully man. And that's going to be very important to keep in mind, especially when I present the gospel of why Christ had to be both fully God and fully man in order to redeem us back to himself from our sins. And yet one thing to keep in mind is that as this is happening, this is something that just happened out of the blue that, oh, just Jesus one day was sent by God. Um, he came at this perfect time in human history. And, oh, he was born of the Virgin Mary. Sweet. No, all this was being prophesied. All these different events that were happening in time and space in history, all these things actually happened according to prophecy. The very first one is you can actually trace it to the very first book of the Bible. And what it says in Genesis 3.15, that God says to the serpent that there will be enmity between you and the woman, that, that, that the seed of the woman, that there's going to be a descendant from the woman who's going to crush the head of Satan once and for all, defeat sin and death once and for all. And yet through that confrontation, the serpent is going to bruise, bruise this seed's heel, this wounded victor. To keep it simple, that ultimately refers to King Jesus, and the book of Genesis paints that seed promise of how that seed is ultimately points to Abraham, then is to his descendants, and how Jesus is the ultimate um, fulfillment of these things. That is just one prophecy in light of dozens of prophecies throughout the Old Testament. And so that's one way, or that's one manner of how Jesus came into the world, that he was, he was sent by God the Father as fully God, adding humanity to himself when he was born of the Virgin Mary. And yet, how does Paul continue in, ver in, in verse 4 here? He says that he was also born under the law as a man. Why? Well, think about this with me. He had to earn perfect righteousness as a man to redeem fallen humanity and Adam back to himself. Consider what Paul mentioned earlier in Galatians 3.13-14. He says that Christ redeemed us. He's talking about the Galatians, he's talking about Christians. He redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit by faith. And so Christ had to be 
born of a woman, right, to be fully man in every sense of the word that we are man. Why? So that he could redeem that which was lost, so that he re- he redeem you and me from our sin. Christ came into this world fully God, fully man. He was born under the law to earn perfect righteousness so that when he would eventually go on that cross and die on the cross, he would be able to actually make atonement. He would actually cleanse us from our sins so that we can receive forgiveness of our sinning against God and find new life in God, to to live for God, to, to enjoy him forever as we glorify him forever. And this is how it works, that when Christ came into this world 2,000 years ago when he died on that cross as, as fully man because he, because he was the only perfect man who lived under the law of God. He never sinned once. He never sinned, and yet he died on the cross as if he was a sinner. He died in the place of people like you and me. He came to die for his people, you and I. So that when he died on that cross, if you believe in him by faith alone, all your sins would eventually be placed in the Christ account and he would pay for it in full. And since he was fully God, he was able to bear that full wrath in a matter of six hours. That's how Christ was actually able to do it. And yet in exchange, because he was fully man, because of your faith in Jesus, all your sins are judged on Christ so that you don't have to have to go to hell for it. And yet in exchange, because of your faith in Christ, he then gives you his perfect righteousness. The perfect righteousness that he earned perfectly under the law as a perfect human being, he gives it to you. Not that you deserved it, not that you can ever earn it, but you received it as a gift. The great exchange, theologians call this, that your sins were placed in the Christ account. He pays it in full as, as fully God. And yet, as the perfect God-man, he gives you his perfect righteousness so that if you repent of your sins and believe in him by faith, you will have eternal life anymore. That is the heart of the gospel. And Christ came to do that because we were all under sin. We were all broken in our sinful state before God. And apart from this beautiful reality, then we're all perishing in hell. And so that is why we all need the gospel. That is why we all must be born again. And if there's anyone here who has not been born again, you must consider who this Christ is. You must consider who he really is. Whether you believe him or not, check him out in the gospels. Because when you read the Gospels at the end of the day, he presents himself not as a liar, not as a lunatic, not as a legend, but as the resurrected Lord who conquered sin and death three days later after the grave. It is because of these things that God has sent his son into, into the world, born of a woman, so that he could live under the law, so that he, he could redeem us as sinners from the law of God. Jesus had to be both fully God and fully man in order to do this. And yet, then that begs another question. Why did Christ go out of his way to do these things? Well, Paul gives two reasons here in, here in Galatians um, chapter verse 5. First, I, I kind of already jumped the gun. It is to redeem those who are under the law, as I just mentioned earlier. And yet, there's another reason that Paul explains here. He says that so that we might receive adoption as sons. So God sent his son born of a woman under the law so that he can redeem us from the law. And yet another reason why he came to do it is that after that, you would be able to be called his adopted sons, that you would be adopted into his family. And this is really that rich word that is filled with so much theological significance. And hopefully you just kind of see how the Christian becoming a son of God by faith, how this is really one of the most beautiful and glorious realities when it comes to your hope as a Christian. Well, what does that word adoption mean first, though? Well, in Paul's day, 
It is really, it was, it was a formal and legal term. It was used to declare that someone who was not a person's child is henceforth to be treated and cared for as one's own child once they have been adopted. And once that child has been adopted, then they would receive all the rights of inheritance based on the father. And what's interesting, when it comes to Paul's day, it was typically only the sons who received such an inheritance. Um, a slave could never really receive an inheritance because, unfortunately, in that day, they, they, were, they weren't really considered people or Roman citizens. How about the women? A woman, ideally, could be, you know, adopted into, a, into an ancient family, but it would be really no use because what's the whole point of the son gaining the inheritance? So that they can one day take care of the family as well. That was not a responsibility that was, you know, granted to the woman. And so that's how this idea of adoption was used in Paul's day and yet, what leads him to say that Christ came to die for you because he loved you, but so that ultimately he would receive, so that we would receive the adoption as sons? And this is really perhaps, the, again, like I said, the beautiful reality of the gospel is that the gospel, the hope of the gospel is not that you receive salva- salvation from your sins. It's not just that you receive forgiveness for your sin against God, as, as important as justification is, as important it is to be declared right before God by your faith in him, that is not where it ends. Before you became the faith in Christ, you were an enemy before God. You could do nothing but sin against God, and you received his eternal condemnation because of it. But by your faith in Christ, he declares you right before him, and yet that is not where it ends. That was only the means for God to get you to put off your status as an enemy of God so that you can put on your new status as a son of God. And, and I'm not, not going to refrain from, from referring to you, sisters, as sons and daughters of God, because if you really keep the historical background at mind there, the daughters never really received the inheritance. It was only the sons. And yet when Paul says that so that you would receive adoption as sons, he is saying that not only to you, my brothers, that you would receive the inheritance of salvation, but he is saying it to everyone, whether you're a woman or a man, whether you are a Jew or Greek, slave or free, doesn't matter. If you believe in Jesus by faith, you receive the inheritance of salvation as if you were his very own sons, as you were his very own children. That is why this teaching of adoption is so rich, so beautiful, that God didn't need to do this. He could have left us dead in our state of sin, and yet he sent his son Jesus so that we would receive forgiveness of our sins, have life in him, but that we'll have life in him as his adopted children. I find what J.I. Packer, he was was an English-Canadian theologian, he says this about really this idea of adoption, that adoption is the highest privilege that the gospel offers, even higher than justification, because justification is the primary spiritual blessing, our greatest need, and yet, adoption is higher because of the rich relationship which God, uh, with God that it, it involves. And so this, so this is what Paul is getting at here when he's talking about this idea of adoption. And yet, another thing I need to keep in mind, though, is that we ha- when it comes to God, right, we have to view it in a way, um, we, we have to, it's, it's, it's an analogy to help us understand our relationship to God. Although God is your father, Christian, Although you are his son or his daughter, this is by way of analogy, right? Because we have fathers. We have earthly fathers here and parents here on this earth. And yet we know that sometimes our earthly fathers, our earthly parents are not perfect. Sometimes people grow up without a father. Sometimes people might grow up with a father who is abusive, 
Um, or sometimes they grow up with a great father, but yet still fall short. Yet, when it comes to that of God as father, you as his children, when God is your father, it, 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 he shows you a love that it, that it never changes. Once you are his adopted children, it is not a love that I love you, love you not type of thing. Rather, once you are his adopted children, that is a status that can never be reversed. The moment you believe in Jesus, that is the moment you become an adopted child into his family, and that is something that could never change. That is the rich beauty of this idea of adoption, and we can spend so much more time on this reality. But just to finish off with this before I go into the final two verses, I just want to help illustrate really how rich this theme of adoption is. This is something that Thomas Goodwin, he was a Puritan writer, he once wrote that, talking about adoption, that he one day saw both a son and a father walking down a road. And as he was observing both a father and a son, he, they were holding hands, and then, then out of, suddenly the father then picks up the child and starts kissing the child, tells that he loves his son, he loves his child, holds him in his arms, and then then puts him down on the ground and starts walking down the road again. And the observation that Goodwin makes is that objectively and legally, there is no difference regarding the sonship to this father. And yet subjectively and experientially, there was all the difference in the world because in his father's arms, the boy was experiencing his sonship. It's one thing to know that you're a child of God. It is one thing to actually experience that you are a child of God. And this leads into how Paul closes um, here in, in the final two verses in Galatians, here in verses 6 to 7. So look there where Paul writes these, these words, loved ones, that because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. And so since a Christian is a son of God, it is God who sends not only his son, but after he has sent his son, he also sends the spirit. He sends the spirit of his son into your heart as the believers, causing you to cry out, Abba, Father. Uh, and, 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 and what this word Abba means, it's, it's, from the, it's from the Aramaic word for father. It, it's not only the word for father, but it really has more of a personal tone. Sometimes people might call it, it, it just really means daddy or papa. It, it just has this really uh, this, um, intimate, very personal tone so, so that when we call God our father, it's not just a formality that like, oh, he's our father, he saved us, we're his children. No, he's our daddy. He is your papa. You depend upon him, not only as your savior, you're not only supposed to obey him as your Lord, but you are to love him because he is your pops. He is your daddy. He is your father in heaven. And what Paul is getting at here is that the moment you believe in Jesus, you have been declared right before him by faith. Then he sends the spirit and it's the spirit in your hearts crying this out that authenticates that you are a child of the living God. It is the spirit that acts as a down payment that this is who you are now as a child of the living God. You can never lose this status. The moment that God declared you his child, the moment he began that good work in you, he is going to bring it to the very end of the day um, when he comes to make all things new. And it's, in, and it's because of that then that Paul then says that you are no longer than a slave. You are no longer a slave under the law of Moses, under sin, or under anything. Instead, you are a son. You are a son of the living God who has been adopted into his family by God giving his own son for you. And if you are a son, then you are an heir through God. And just the one thing that's interesting here, as Paul is discussing all these things, it is in this very last verse that Paul then changes, changes something here. 
When he's referring to you, he's talking about everyone corporately. He's talking to all the Galatians. He's talking to everyone in the plural. But in, the, but in this last passage, it is in the singular. He is referring to you as if he's talking to you personally. You won't be able to understand that difference um, in your English Bibles, but if you have like a different Bible, like in German or in the Greek, you're, able, you're going to be able to see that subtle nuance. And it's at this point that Paul is insane. In light of all these things, it is you individually. It is you, God is speaking directly to you that if you are no longer a slave because you believe in Jesus by faith, then you are his son. And as a son, you are an heir through God. You will receive his inheritance of eternal life in King Jesus. And so loved ones, in light of this reality of adoption as sons, do not live your lives thinking that, yes, I'm a child of the living God, but then you live doubting that reality. No, embrace this reality Find the richness of, of what does it mean to be a child of the living God, that you are a son. This is how he treats you. This is how he views you. And, 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 and he did so by sending his own son to die for you. So that, so that when you believe in him by faith and come to him, then you become partakers, not only of his divine nature, but you become partakers of this inheritance that Jesus, our elder brother, shares with us now. And so loved ones, live your lives, not doubting this reality in your life, but live as if, as if it is true of you each and every single day. Because that is what God declares to you the moment you first believed in his son by faith and faith alone. Therefore, and out of all these things, and I, I will end with the question I began with this evening. What does it mean to be a Christian? And again, so many ways to answer that question. And yet, in light of the text tonight, I believe, again, J.I. Packer, that theologian, he gives a good answer when he says this, that the richest answer I know is that a Christian is one who has God as Father. So really, the secret to true joy in life, it is by being adopted into God's family by faith in Christ alone. Not only does God's promise not only does he make the promise to make a people for himself, but he also promises to send his son by the Spirit. Only then is it possible for you to experience the joy of knowing the God who is there and is not silent. You are his precious sons and daughters, and he is your loving Father in heaven. So rest in this reality, loved ones. Do not forget it. Never forget it as you live this Christian life. Because your identity is no longer based on your status as a broken sinner, deserving of God's eternal wrath. Instead, it is forever based on your status as an adopted child of the living God because you were first declared right before him by faith in Christ alone, allowing you to receive such a beautiful inheritance, the gift of life, joy, pleasure that can only be found in him as God. And so with all these things in mind, loved ones, let's go before our Lord in prayer. We will have a final song of worship, and then we will go into the Lord's Supper. And so, bow your hearts with me, loved ones, as we pray.